first session of our summer Bible conference. A great joy um, in going back to March of last year, Pastor Self, uh, we were having a meal with him and he said, you guys should invite Scott's son, Philip, to do a Bible conference for you. And we said, great idea, let's do it. And so we reached out and so we're just delighted to have Philip and his wife, Catherine, are uh, hailing now from Kansas City, Missouri, where Philip is a pastor of Wernal Road Baptist Church. They have three children, a son, Campbell, two daughters, Chloe and Iris. Philip is the third born of, I think, Scott and Marcia's six. Did I get it right? Great. Bre- fourth. I'm s- okay. You're, okay. So you're fourth. It's okay. Fourth. That's right. And a brother to our John, uncle to Art Hadley, and we... Uh, really a son of the church, and we are just uh, delighted to have you, brother, come preach the word of God to us. I think my last memory in this building was sitting somewhere in our designated pew, like right there, which we did every time, every week, and I owe a great deal of gratitude to this church for your testimony to the gospel in my life as a young person. And I can say with great confidence that the Lord used that, those years here, to much good in my life. And it's a real distinct privilege for me to be invited by you, just to be invited, let alone to be here with you and get to open God's word with you, which is uh, always a privilege. And I feel it especially so in this time that I get with you. If you would turn to John, the book of John, and John chapter 14. My aim in the five uh, talks that I have from John is to walk us through life with God. That subject may seem to you somewhat general or ambiguous. It did to me too, um, and still in some ways is cloaked a bit in mystery, But I remember reading through this particular section of John, John 13 through 17, and thinking, Jesus is telling us here something magnificent. He is is bringing us in to understand what unity with him means. And for a while, for me, it just sort of hung out there, waiting to be accessed, waiting to be mined. And I wanted to know more. And then the Lord gave me the the opportunity to preach through this section in my home church in Missouri. And so from that study, I'm bringing five, five different aspects to you in this series of life with God. And they kind of, they follow a trajectory. So today, we're going to think about the origination of life with God, where it starts. Where does it start? And before uh, we get into the passage, let me first open and ask that God would help us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you make what is mysterious and unknown to us clear through your revelation and through your active work in our hearts, and through the preaching of your word. So Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, engage us through your word and in our hearts, 
that we, we might even tonight walk out having understood that not only has a human voice spoken about your word, but you, through your divine voice in your word, have spoken to us and dealt with us in the way that you would. We ask for it. We seek it. We invite it. In Jesus' name, amen. John 14, 8 through 14. Let me read that. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now we are admittedly dropping into a conversation that has been going on for a little bit of time here between Jesus and his disciples after what you might re, uh, know as the, as the Last Supper. Jesus, after that, has told his disciples he's about to leave them, and they want to know where he's going, and they want to know how to get to where he's going. Jesus tells them that he's going to his Father, God, and they will only get there when he comes back to bring them. Both Peter and Thomas have already had misconceptions about how we get to God. Peter thought he could do it. Thomas didn't think the way could be known. And now in this passage, Philip is going to introduce yet another misconception. All of Jesus' teaching in this section has to do with that big theme I opened us up with, life with God. In every section of John 13, 33, through chapter 16, even into the prayer of, of Jesus in chapter 17, Jesus teaches his disciples what God is doing through the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, to give them life with the triune God. So Jesus is doing that here with Philip. And he's going to correct, correct Philip's misconception about how we have life with God, and he's going to do it by pointing to himself. Our outline then is going to be this, two things. Philip's misconception and Jesus' correction. Jesus aims to show Philip that if there is life with God, and there is, it originates with him, with Jesus. So let's begin then with the first point, Philip's misconception. In John 14, 6, just a couple verses from where I started, there's that famous verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells his disciples he's the only way to the Father. And in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, for some reason... Philip hears this, and then he says what he says in verse 8. Lord, 
Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Did Philip think that Jesus was about to reveal his Father to them? Or was Philip confused? Not sure what Jesus meant. So he takes what he thinks Jesus is talking about and asks for Jesus to do that. Well, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, when Philip says Father, he's referring to God, your maker and my maker, the one we gave praise to at the beginning of this time, the creator of all things. The word of God, our maker, to us is what we're opening, the Bible. And in the Bible, God describes himself as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet one God. These three persons work all together as one in perfect harmony among themselves and for the purpose of showing God's greatness in judging evil and saving sinners from death. Philip seems, though, to have more of a one-person view of God. That there was only Father God. In the coming verses, Jesus explains the unity of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, that they're all united, that they're all one, and knowing one means you know all three. We're not told what prompts Philip to say what he says, but I do think his words reveal a basic misconception. That we can access God the Father aside from Jesus. Do you see it there? Jesus has just said, no one can come to the Father except through him. He has just said, knowing him is the same as knowing the Father. But Philip asked for a scenario that seems to cut Jesus out of the picture. All Jesus needs to do for Philip is to introduce Philip to a vision of the Father. Philip doesn't want to be brought to the Father Philip wants the Father to be brought to him. In Philip's view, Jesus' ministry is apparently lacking. Even though Jesus said knowing him means knowing the Father, Philip needs more revelation. Even though Jesus has said that he is the only way to the Father, Philip needs someone outside of Jesus. Should Jesus provide that someone or that something, then for Philip, it seems, it will be enough. Whatever it is that Philip thinks Jesus showing the Father is going to do, it is clear that for Philip, Jesus is not enough. Jesus, Philip wants access to God, but not in a way that happens through Jesus. I'm still not quite sure what it would look like for Jesus to give Philip what it is he's asking for. Would it be a vision of God? A kind of pulling back the curtain to look into where God the Father is? Nor am I sure why Philip thought that would be quote unquote enough. Enough for what? A momentary spiritual experience? An emotional high, a profound life-shaping event. In Exodus 34, you might remember another person who got such a vision of God. Moses on Mount Sinai. He got to see the backside of God's glory as he passed by. But that experience didn't keep Moses from sinning against God. 
laying eyes on God's glory as he passed did not purify Moses or make him better. And for anyone else, seeing God was more like a threat of death than a way to life. The people at the foot of the mountain, while Moses was up having that experience, you know what they were saying? Don't let God speak to us, lest we die. Whatever Philip thought, he had a misconception that the way to the Father through Jesus was not necessary. He wants Jesus to serve him, put him in front of the Father, and either Philip will take it from there, or he supposed maybe that the Father would. Doesn't this seem so like the way our world operates? People seem to want any other path to God than Jesus. You know, none of the major world religions, save Christianity, recognize Jesus as essential to knowing God. At best, in them, he is a kind of side character or completely ignored. Instead, people often want a vision of God, or they want a spiritual experience. They want a guru. They want a mystical drug-induced hallucination. They want a purpose. Or they just want some vague connection to something meaningful. People will try, take, follow, buy just about anything. But when Jesus is in front of them, they know they don't need him. Even as Christians, we can operate that way at times, can't we? How many times do we skip over Jesus? How often do we bypass him on the way to the thing we think we really need? The thing that we are sure if it comes, that will be enough. Getting our daily tasks finished. Hitting the career milestone. Putting more in the savings account. Having a certain type of body or image, a wardrobe that we've longed for, reaching a certain position that we've been working after. Philip wanted Jesus to give him an experience. Are you living like Jesus is there to give you the experience you want? The life you want? Many times we assume That if Jesus gave us what we wanted today, that would be enough. Even if what he gave had no connection to him or what he came to bring us. You know, our complaints and worries reveal that we don't think Jesus is enough. And what we need to have is what we don't have. Or what we need to know is what we don't know. That the life we need is somehow a life lived independently from Jesus. Well, I hope we see. It is a terrible misconception to think that we have access to God outside of Jesus or access to life with God, for that matter. If we've fallen into Philip's way of thinking, Jesus has something to say to us, which is my second main point. Of my talk tonight. Jesus' correction. There is life with God. Through Jesus. Jesus' correction is this. To Philip's misconception. There is life with God. Through Jesus. 
So we saw what Jesus said in John 14, 6, that he's the way and the truth and life, that he brings us to the Father. But here in this passage that I just read a moment ago, Jesus is saying he brings the Father to us. And in the course of 8 to 14, he tells us how he does that in three steps. Three ways, three steps in which Jesus brings the Father to us. And they kind of build on each other. Here they are. These are the way that Jesus brings the Father to us. Through seeing, through believing, and through living. So my first sub-point. We see the Father through Jesus. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So notice that Jesus assumes that you and I need to see God. Otherwise, why would this matter at all? He also assumes that he is the much-needed bridge between humanity and God. He is testifying that he is one and the same with God. That he is the divine. And so with eight words, Jesus endorses Christianity as the only true religion and simultaneously denounces Mormonism, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, none of which believe that Jesus is God. But Jesus is different from the Father because they could lay their eyes on Jesus. He was there with them, and the Father was not. And this can only happen because Jesus, though God, took human form. He became like us. The mystery of the gospel is that God would do this for us. That the Father would send the Son and the Son would leave the Father to come to us. Why was Jesus here with those disciples that day? So that they would see God and live. And so that you, hearing these eyewitnesses' testimony, would live as well. You see the reversal that God is working over time. When he created Adam and Eve, they were humans bearing God's image. But Adam and Eve fell. And all humanity, including you and me, fell with them in sin. The image of God marked on humanity was not enough to keep them from sin and death. Then God comes bearing man's image in Jesus Christ. And as God, he succeeds where Adam failed. All our praise should go to Jesus for this heroic achievement. I wonder if you're here and inclined to think, I might care more about God if I could see him. Maybe you wonder if he's even real because you can't see him. If you saw him, how would you know it was him? What shape or what appearance do you think God should take in making you know that he is real? Why should he do it the way you think it should be done? 
And are you sure you could see God and live? Is it possible that God came to earth 2,000 years ago and showed himself? And we just weren't alive to see it? It's definitely possible. Even more it happened. God came to earth in the way he wanted, and Jesus is him. He does not have to do it our way. He didn't have to do it anyway. And yet he chose to do it this way for our salvation. Christ became like us, became sin for us, died for us, and rose for us, for our salvation. Christian, there are so many things that I'm only beginning to discover at age 40 that we cannot see and cannot know. But we can know God. And that is the source of confidence and contentment for all of the other parts of life that we can't know and can't see. Especially in times when we feel weakest, we can see that Jesus came into our weakness and showed us the Father. Our weakness is the arena from which we best see Christ and through him our loving Heavenly Father. So if your marriage or other relationships are really gridlocked right now and you aren't sure what's going to give, let me suggest that you must see Jesus before things will start to change. You must see that there is a human being besides yourself that demands your attention, a perfect sinless one who died to forgive your sin. And rose again in power to change your life. And if you encounter Jesus, then you have met the person who, by his power, can produce grace and humility in you. The very things you need to love your spouse or others above yourself. Grace Baptist Church. I trust that when you're all gathered here, you look around and you recognize a diverse group coming from different backgrounds and ways of life. I'm sure you have many different opinions and preferences about things individually. But you all know the same Father through the same Jesus. The vision of God that you've been given in Christ is meant to be a unifying element in your life together. Enough to draw you closer, even when in other things you would otherwise divide. So Christ's statement is an invitation for this church collectively to emphasize the importance of ongoing, clear view of Jesus in your life together. And this is also an invitation of taking your eyes off yourself. So when you think about Jesus, what are you seeing? Is there anything that prevents you from seeing the Father through him? There's nothing lacking for seeing God. We don't need Christian movies to illustrate him so that then we'll see him right. We don't need emotionally manipulative worship practices. We don't need vague and mysterious spiritualism 
We need to know who Jesus is. His character, his ways, his motivations, and his actions, and they're all presented to us here. We see the Father through Jesus. So seeing Jesus is the first step to knowing God, to knowing the Father. Jesus brings the Father to us so that we can know him. So seeing him is the first step, bringing us life with God. But the second step Jesus introduces and provides for us is that he is how we believe in God. We believe God through Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 9. Whoever has seen me, sorry, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You hear it repeated, believe, believe, believe. The extent of Philip's request was that Jesus show the disciples something. Jesus says, I've shown you, I've shown you. Jesus' demonstration of who God is, is not lacking. What is lacking is our response of faith and trust. Jesus assumes that a person who has seen him needs to believe him. And if you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. So flip that statement around and realize Jesus is telling you and me that if you don't believe or believe in Jesus, then you don't believe or believe in God. Not the true and living God, that is. So people then that that Jesus is addressing are like people now. And Jesus understood how we demand proof before we'll believe. We do that with God. But you know, as I thought about this, I thought to myself, do I? Do we do that with other little God, like little G gods? Do Do we have the same demand of proof before we'll believe in them? When was the last time you demanded proof that money would make you happy before you gave your heart to it? Or stop short of letting your feelings drive you to worry or anger, demanding first that you have proof that those reactions will actually help you. We don't do that, do we? But with the one God who is real and alive and powerful and gracious and faithful, he's the one we put under trial. So see the patience of God in Jesus here. Jesus understands our weakness and our stubborn insistence that we have proof. And he says, there's plenty of proof. The proof is in my words. The proof is in my works. If you listen to Jesus, you will hear the Father speaking truly through him. If you study Jesus' life, you'll see the Father doing miraculous things through him and around him. You don't need to go beyond this book to hear God. 
You, you don't need any more revelation than what Jesus shows us about himself in these pages. Now, since we're not the disciples, we, I understand, do not get to physically lay eyes on Jesus in this life, which puts even more emphasis on this believing part that Jesus is getting at. Faith is the primary way that we relate to our Father in this life. Now that can get frustrating because we can tend to think that things are more real if we can see them. Our frustration with belief can, also, can often lead us to start trying out our trust on things that we can see. We look for something that we can touch, thinking that it must be the real thing to build our life on as an alternative to faith in the unseen God. But have you ever considered that living by faith might actually help us know the Father better than seeing him with eyes? If we could see him, then I think we would be inclined to not question that he exists. But would we depend on him like we have to when he says he's working, but we can't exactly see how? If we could see his miracles, we might say objectively, yes, those are divine miracles. But would we know their personal relevance for us? Faith confirms that we don't need sight to know God. We just need God living in us. I love how in the Gospels, the people who seem to see Jesus best and believe him immediately are blind people. People who are very, very familiar with a life of dependence, with with groping in the dark and humbly asking, please take me by the hand, someone, and lead me where I need to go. Those are the people who see Jesus immediately and say, my salvation is here. Of course, everything Jesus has said and done assures us that this is what we should do, that is, believe him. Of course, we can trust the one who speaks so wisely and truly about what is real. Of course we can know. His power is sufficient to work in our lives when we read what kinds of things Jesus is capable of doing. Of course we can give our lives to him who gave his life on a cross to save us from our sins. Jesus is calling for believers. And that call divides us. It divides us. There were many people around Jesus for whom words and works from the Father weren't enough for them. So if Jesus isn't enough to convince you to believe in God, nothing will be. Is Jesus calling to you this evening as an unbeliever to put your trust in him? See him. Hear him. Believe him. Do not leave here thinking there is another way to life with God. And for those of us who are believing in Jesus, remember, as he says earlier in this conversation with his disciples, he said he's going to come back. And 
we know we're in that waiting and some of us feel like we've been waiting for a long time. He hasn't come back yet. And let me tell you why. He hasn't come back yet because he's waiting for more to be challenged by him. He's waiting for more to surrender their stubborn resistance, to repent of their sins, and believe in him to be the way to the Father. And he is waiting on your behalf so that more of him would be formed in you. Doesn't that make the trials of time easier to endure as a Christian? With every day that we linger here in our mortal bodies, we're becoming more like Christ. And as we do that, more people in our city and in our world are seeing and believing in Jesus, which is eternal life for them. So Grace Baptist Church, while you wait, while we wait, and we wait in Kansas City, Missouri, and we wait shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters all over the world, we must keep insisting that Jesus be the foundation of our belief and practice as a church. So when you're planning as a church, you're trusting Jesus to lead you. When you're working through conflict as a church, you're wanting to reconcile around Jesus. When you're following your pastors, you're following out of reverence for Jesus. When you're serving one another, you're serving out of love for Jesus. When you're preaching or engaging your community or walking along someone in joy or in trial, you're encouraging the people you talk to to believe and to believe in Jesus. We have access to the Father through Jesus. Through Jesus, we see the Father and we believe him. Jesus has one more thing to teach us for life with God in this passage, and it's this. Third thing, we live with God through Jesus. Look at verse 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. When I read that, as I was preparing, the stuff about prayer is the thing that like jumps off the page to me. I don't know about you. Verse 13 and 14. And that is obviously important because Jesus references it twice. But before we get to that part... See that Jesus is now describing to the disciples what life will look like for them after he has left and gone to the Father. Second half of verse 12. Their lives will be full of activity with Jesus and full of asking Jesus after he's gone. Look at all the mention of doing in these verses. And as I read them, see that the disciples' doing is inseparably linked to prayer, and to what Jesus is doing. See here, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. This I will do. I will do it. Do you see what's happening in this passage? Seeing and believing Jesus is the way we come to live united to Jesus such that his work is no longer what's done kind of around us or even to us, but through us. How is that possible? We'll keep reading tonight 
And you'll hear Jesus soon explain that it will happen because he's sending a helper. A regenerating spirit to live in us with the power of God. When Jesus lived here on earth, he told us the Father's words. And he did things that demonstrated to all people that the Father is real and meant to be trusted. But Jesus wasn't going to be staying to do that forever. So, who picks up that work? Well, the people he comes to live in through faith. Most immediately, the disciples who in the coming years will take the testimony about Jesus and the Father to the furthest reaches of the world. This is what I think Jesus means when he uses the word greater in verse 12. A difference of range, not a difference of quality. Jesus' works will be, after all, confined to one place, Jerusalem, but the apostles' witness will carry the news about Jesus far and wide. The fact that you are carrying the gospel here to Greenville, South Carolina, which didn't exist, I don't think, when Jesus said this, proves Jesus' point. Jesus never intended his church to be a place where people huddle in fear of the outside world, shrinking back from engaging a culture opposed to Christianity. No, he wants us to know that his world-changing message needed to go further, and he has chosen us to take it. When we live with Jesus, his mission becomes ours. He hands off his work to you, Christian, and to you, church. Go and tell about the holy and merciful Father who extends an invitation of life with him to any sinner. Go and show people this Father through compassion and kindness, through courage in the face of evil and patience in trial. But how will we know If we have what we need to do Jesus' work. To engage in this life of Jesus' united activity. Well, it's because we have Jesus with us. And we only need to ask him for anything we lack. Look at the path this passage travels. Think about where it started. Philip assumed Jesus lacked something only a vision of the Father could give. Only that revelation would be enough. But throughout the passage, it's actually the disciples and it's us who are the ones who don't have enough. Not enough to see the Father on our own. Not enough faith to see the Father in Jesus. And not enough power or resources to work for the Father on our own. And in every aspect of our need and lack, Jesus is enough. So he tells Philip, all he needs to do is ask Jesus. If in the life of giving your life to Jesus' work, you find you lack the strength, ask Jesus. If in the grind of sorrows and sins, you lose sight of the love of Jesus, ask Jesus. If in the trials of rejection or disappointment, your resolve of faith wanes, ask Jesus. Jesus came with a resolve to glorify his Father in his life and his death and his resurrection. He came to love the Father with all his might, and he did. He came to make the Father known so sinners could come to him 
And now, Christian, he is helping you to do the same. And he has promised that every resource he has will be at your disposal. When you ask Jesus in his name, that means you're asking for something you lack and for something you need from Jesus to do his work. So you're asking for more faith, you're asking for more love, more kindness, more boldness to speak, more compassion to care, more wisdom to think, less self, less sin, more fruit, more people saved and baptized, more hearts changed. So this makes the process of prayer as vital as breathing to the Christian. As if our inhale is, Jesus, I need you. And the exhale of relief, Jesus, I have you. Unlike Philip's misconception, life with God is not independent of Jesus. Life with God depends on Jesus. and He's ready for our prayers of weakness and dependence. He is ready for our tears and our joys. He is prepared to hear our one word whispers for help when unbelief seems to squelch any other words from our lips. And however brief the ask, know that our prayers go to Jesus, one with the Father, the Ancient of Days, the King of Glory, the Resurrected Savior. Jesus commits to apply his power as a direct answer to our prayers in his name. If we are weary in prayer and we are laboring to believe that our prayers do anything at all, then perhaps this, these words from Jesus, will help us shift our attention to him. After all, it's not what our prayers do. It's what he does in answer to our prayers. This weekend, take verses 12 to 14 to your own prayer time. Talk to Jesus about what he wants to do through you. Then go from your prayers into your life with this repeated promise impressed on your heart that he tells us here in this passage, I will do. So to conclude tonight, the beginning of our study in life with God as Jesus teaches it to us, Jesus is telling us here that he is where life with God originates, where it starts. Even if we go home asking for this life because we have felt tonight under conviction of our great need for it or been reminded of it, that we need to turn again to him and seek him, know that there is nothing lacking for life with God. Even before we might ask out of our need, Jesus has already given all his life, his body and his blood, to secure this life with God. Jesus is truly enough for us. Lord, we trust that through the, even the reading of your word, you are capable of doing miraculous things. Uh, We trust that your spirit has intentions to glorify the Son and the Father, even tonight. And we pray that it would be so. We ask in your name. We ask for the things that we lack, 
and only in you and your power can supply, that is heart soft to you, hearts receptive, humility to admit where we have turned to other things we're depending on, grace to lift up our downcast souls, and above all else, either a new awakening to the cross of Jesus where forgiveness is applied and given and resurrection life is held out for those dead in their sin or encouragement again to see again Jesus crucified, buried, and raised for our salvation and for our life with you. Whatever vision, whatever we need to see of Jesus tonight, would you please help us to see it? Whatever we need to trust in him, help us to trust it. And whatever life there is that can be found in Jesus that takes us to you, our Father, would you please lead us to it? We ask in Christ's name, amen.